of the whole earth and it touched not the ground it was really coming fast and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes did I go to the next one here we go and he came to the ram that had two horns which I'd seen standing before the river and ran at him in the fury of his power and I saw him come close under the ram and he was moved with choler or with anger against him and he smote the ram and brake its two horns and there was no power in the ram to stand before him but he cast him down to the ground he stamped upon him and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand therefore the he-goat waxed very great and was when he was strong that great horn was broken and for it came up four notable horns towards the four winds of heaven so Daniel now sees this ram pushing west north and south and then when he looks at that ram here comes the goat now it's coming from the west it's coming across it's going really extremely fast and when it gets to the ram boom it just beats up the ram nobody can deliver the ram out of its hand it just stomps it and destroys this ram but then this horn that was in the the ram's head this great horn between his eyes that gets broken off and four other horns come up toward the four winds of heaven or the directions you know northeast west and south so Daniel is going you know what is this where what's going on here what do these things uh, represent well you remember in Daniel chapter 2 these different body parts represented what they represented kingdoms they represented different nations Babylon Medo-Persia Greece Rome and then of course the divisions of Rome and then we looked at Daniel chapter 7 and uh, these same powers Babylon Greece Medo-Persia Rome the divisions of Rome and in that little horn there they uh, it was the same line of prophecy just different beasts different symbols but the same nations and so we're gonna see that that's exactly the same thing that's going on here it's the same line of prophecy so now we're going to take a look at well who are these uh, who, who is this ram and who is this goat so we look at verse 20 verse 20 there says the ram which you saw having two horns are the kings of who it's the Medes and the Persians and then Daniel is uh, explains or, or has explained to him what the goat represents and the rough goat is the king of Grisha and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king and of course the first king was Alexander the Great so we're just looking here the same line of prophecy Babylon is pretty much off the scene now because Belshazzar is the king when Daniel's having his dream and it's coming the Medes and Persians and then the Greece Greeks and if you read on you'll find that uh, eventually it gets to this little horn so it's the same line of prophecy but a different focus a different emphasis that God wants to show through the prophet Daniel so again, Daniel's a pr uh, prisoner of war. He's uh, seen these great empires coming and going, one right after the other. Some of them last for hundreds of years. And as a prisoner of war, he knows firsthand what it's like to see bloodshed. He knows what it's like to see armies roll over other armies. He understands what it's like for the devastation of the nation and women and children are not exempt from the cruelties of war. Daniel has seen it over and over and in these long periods of time, this one nation coming after the other nation, world empires, and it, it just, he wonders, when's it ever going to end? When's it ever going to stop? One of these great empires, these persecutors of God's people, when, when is it just going to go away? When is there ever going to be peace anymore? And the angel actually tells him when justice is going to be served. So we back up a little bit and we look at verse 14 in this chapter. So Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14 there it says, and he said unto me, unto two thousand and how long? Two thousand and three hundred days, then the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. Then the sanctuary is going to be made right again. So Gabriel tells Daniel that 
Here's how long these nations are going to lord it over God's people. Here's how long the sanctuary is going to be destroyed. Here's how long the, the nations are going to be just uh, trampling one upon another. It says, unto 2,300 days at that time, then the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. So this is what Daniel hears, 2,300 days. But we know in Bible prophecy, a day in Bible prophecy is equal to what? A year in real time. So these 2,300 days that Daniel is being told about by the angel Gabriel represent not 2,300 days, but 2,300 what? 2,300 years. And so Daniel is just going, you've got to be kidding me. That long? I mean, 2,300 years? Everything's going to be just a pile of rubble for that long? And, and he just, it, it sickens him. But he wants to know, what does it all mean? What is it, this, this ram, this goat, uh, uh, this little horn that's in this vision as well? Uh, 2,300 days, it, it's just hard to believe. But the next verse, he says, he comes near. And I can't, it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and I sought for the meaning. I wanted to know what this was all about. Then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. So as Daniel's trying to figure out what this dream is all about, what this vision is all about, here comes someone and he's seeking for the meaning and now a man stands before him or at least the appearance of a man. Verse 16 says, And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, because this is where he, in his dream he was standing beside this river. A man's voice from between the banks of Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. Interpret this to Daniel. Make him understand what this vision is all about. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid, and I fell on my face. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of when? At the time of the end shall be the vision. So when is this vision really most applicable for? It's most applicable at the end of time, at the time of the end, when you and I are around, when you and I are living. And I don't know what it's like. I've never seen an angel, at least that I'm aware of. But if you ever saw an angel, a bright, shining, dazzling angel, I imagine I'd be trembling as well. And that's exactly what Daniel is doing here in verse 17. He says, I was afraid. I fell upon my face. But the angel Gabriel tells Daniel, understand O son of man, for at the time of the end, that's when the vision is going to take place. It's a vision for the last days. And so Gabriel is there to instruct Daniel. He's there to give him understanding in the vision. He tells him that the ram represents the kingdoms of, Me of the Medes and Persians, that the, the, um, the goat represents the king of Grecia. He talks about Rome, this little horn, and eventually... At the end of the chapter, in verse 27, it says, And the vision, verse 26, And the vision of the evening and the morning, which was told, it's true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. So the vision of the evening and the morning, it's true, Daniel. But shut it up, because it's going to be for a long time. 2,300 years. And when Daniel realized that it was really true, that it was going to take that long, that these nations were just going to roll over God's people for hundreds and even thousands of years, it just, it made him physically ill. And so in verse 27, it says, I, Daniel, fainted, and I was sick certain days. Afterwards, I rose up and did the king's business. I was astonished at the vision. But did he understand it? Yeah, it said nobody understood it. None understood this vision. Again, Daniel's been in captivity his whole life. His whole life he's been in captivity. Jerusalem has been in ruins. Uh, these kingdoms are, are, are killing and, and destroying God's buildings and God's people. He knows firsthand what it's like. And he just couldn't bear the thought that it's going to continue for 2,300 years. And so he became physically ill. 
But at the end of the vision, he doesn't understand it. He doesn't realize what is all this about and what's the purpose for it all. Because he doesn't have a beginning date, an ending date. He doesn't know when it's going to happen. And so he begins to pray and he begins to study and he begins to search the scriptures to see if he can figure out what this is real, what is really going on here. So let's go over to the next chapter. We're going to look at now uh, as Daniel begins to pray in Daniel chapter 9, and we'll begin in verse 1. So this now is in the first year of Darius. So the, the kingdom is passed from Babylon. Now it's in the hands of the Medes and Persians. So here he says in in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish how many years? If you weren't awake before... You're awake now, right? How many years that he would accomplish how many years in the desolations of Jerusalem? Seventy years. So here's Daniel. He hears this envision that it's going to be this long 2,300-year time frame. He just can't believe how is it going to be that long. And so as he, he doesn't understand the vision, so he goes back to the Bible and he begins searching the scriptures to try and figure out what is this all about. He comes across Jeremiah and realizes that it, it's supposed to only be 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. I'm hearing 2,300 years in the vision. I'm reading 70 years in the Bible. I don't understand it. And so he begins to pray. He begins to, un to seek to understand what is this 2,300 years all about. And so in verse 3, he says, I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed. I prayed unto the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. So he's pleading with God. Listen, I want to understand this. He's fasting. He's, he's got sackcloth and ashes, symbols of mourning. He wants to really understand what this is all about. And so as he's praying, the Bible tells us that Gabriel comes back. This is a few years later now. Babylon has fallen, the Medes and Persians have come back, and now Gabriel returns, because remember what God told Gabriel? Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. But by the time we get to the end of chapter in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel says, nobody understood it. So as Gabriel finished his job, no, he hasn't. He hasn't made Daniel understand the vision. So Gabriel's going to come back and make Daniel understand what's going on. So Gabriel comes back here in verse 21. While Daniel is praying, it says, Yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning. So that's the vision of chapter 8. The same Gabriel that I saw in the vision at the beginning, he's coming back, being caused to fly swiftly. He touched me about the time of the evening oblation or the evening sacrifice. And he informed me and he talked with me and he said, Oh, Daniel, I am now come. I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am now come to show thee. For thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. I want you to look at this vision again, and I'm going to help you to understand it. That's the reason I'm coming back. I am now come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Now, what part of the vision was it that, didn't, that Gabriel uh, had not fully given Daniel understanding of? Daniel knew what the ram was. What did he find out the ram was? It was the Medes and Persians. I'm going to put that question in the... <laughs> okay, what did he find out the goat was? Greece. So I don't put that question in because you already know the answer. 
Okay, so he knew parts of the vision were, were explained to him. He knew what the ram was. He knew what the goat was. He understood what the little horn. He had seen that in Daniel chapter 7. What was it that Daniel didn't understand? When at the end of Daniel chapter 8, Gabriel had told him, it's true, Daniel, this 2300 days is the way it's going to be. But Daniel's confused. He's praying in this chapter, but I'm reading in the Bible, it's 70 years, and here I'm getting something in vision that says 2300 how do I, how do I harmonize, harmonize what I'm hearing in vision and what I'm seeing in the Bible? They don't seem to fit together. That's the part he doesn't understand. And so when Gabriel comes back to say, okay, I'm going to teach you now, the very first thing he begins to talk about is time. The very first thing that he talks about is time. So consider the vision. Next verse, 70 weeks, a time frame. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So here we're going to do uh, just a little bit of quick review of what we looked at uh, last evening. This 70 week time frame here and it says it's determined. 70 weeks are determined and that word determined there means to set aside or to cut off or to... to uh, separate from that's what the word determined means and then it's for thy people Israel so 70 weeks from this long 2,300 year prophecy 70 weeks is going to be set aside especially for your people the nation of uh, the nation of Israel that's what God is is uh, telling Daniel there or, or um, Gabriel rather so this is what we looked at last, uh, last evening. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem up to the Messiah is going to use up 69 weeks, seven weeks and three score and two weeks and you add those together, it comes up to 69. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So here's what we looked at last night. We looked at this... Uh, uh, this 70-week part, we found out it was 490 years, a day in Bible prophecy equaling a year in real time. And it was divided into a 7-week portion and a 62-week portion for a total of 69 weeks that represented 483 years. That would bring us from this decree to restore and build Jerusalem up to the time that the Messiah was going to come. And we found that that began in 457 B.C. And the whole 70 weeks would end in uh, 34 A.D. But then the Messiah would come in 27 A.D. And so then we, what we did is we went uh, and focused in on this final seven uh, years here, the final week. This is when the Messiah was going to come. And we just wanted to focus in and find, well, what's going on in these, uh, in these particular years here. So we went to uh, uh, continued looking in the book of, the book of Daniel here. And finding out that the Messiah was going to be cut off during this last seven-year time frame. So in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26, it said, And after the three score and two weeks, Messiah was going to be cut off. Jesus was going to be crucified. But not for himself, the Bible says. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And, unto the, and to the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. So when was the Messiah going to be cut off? Here it tells us that the Messiah was going to be cut off after the 62-week portion. And we found out here that it was going to be in the middle of that final seven years. He's going to confirm the covenant with many for one week, and that one week representing uh, the seven years. And in the middle of that week, in the midst of that week, he was going to cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. For the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. So we looked at this seven years here, final seven years, and we found out that at the be, uh, uh, <clears throat> when you want to make a middle, you break them up into two, three and a half year period. 
And at the beginning, that's when the Messiah came, when Jesus was baptized and the uh, Holy Spirit came upon him, when he was anointed with the Holy Ghost and with power. That was in the year 27 AD. And then in the midst of the year, the uh, final week, in the midst of this three and a, pardon me, in the midst of the seven years, three and a half years after the Messiah came, and uh, I was told last night, what's What's the season of fall? I can see your brows furrowing. Fall is what you say in America. You say autumn here. Okay? So this happened in the autumn of 27 AD. In the autumn of 27 AD, that's when the Messiah came. That's when Jesus was baptized in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. So from the autumn of 27 AD, we go three and a half years into the future. From the autumn of AD 27 to the autumn of AD 28, that's one year. To the autumn of AD 29, that's two years. To the autumn of 30, that's three years. And then six more months will bring us to the spring of AD 31. And in that year, this is when Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. And then we saw that uh, the Holy Spirit fell out on the days of Pentecost. The disciples were out preaching, filled with the Holy Spirit. But in 34 AD, Stephen was taken out, a man filled with the Holy Ghost. They didn't like he, what he was saying. They hauled him out of the synagogue and they cast stones at him and killed him. And that happened there in 34 AD. So this whole 70-week time frame was specially set aside for the nation of Israel. Began in 457 B.C., all the way down through uh, 69 weeks, brought us to the time of the Messiah. And then in the middle of that time frame, Jesus was crucified. And then at the end, the rejection of the Holy Spirit. So God had allotted these 70 weeks especially for the nation of Israel. He had tried to reach them through the uh, prophets, but they stoned them, killed them. He said, I'll send my son, and they rejected Jesus. And then he said, well, I'll pour out my spirit, and they rejected the people who were filled with the Holy Spirit. So God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all tried to reach the nation of Israel, but they rejected each and every one. And so in 34 AD, the time allotted for the nation of Israel had come to a close. Well, this 70-week time frame had been cut off or separated for the people of Israel from this long 2,300-year time period. So... If you take this 490 years and subtract it from this long 2300 year period, how many years do you have left? You have 1810 years left, 1810 years left. So this 490 years took up the first part of the 2300 years. And now if we just subtract, we've got 1810 years left. So what do we do? Well, we start where this one finished in AD 34, and we just go 1,810 years into the future, and that's going to bring us to the end of the 2,300 years. And that tells us we'll go 1,810 years into the future, and it brings us to the year 1844. But the big question is, uh, what happened? What happened in 1844? Well, if we, if we back up to Daniel chapter 8, remember what uh, Gabriel told Daniel. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. And what does it say? What would happen at the end of these 2,300 days or 2,300 years? Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14 says, And he said unto me, Unto 2,300 days, then something would happen. What would happen? The sanctuary would be cleansed. So at the end of this long 2,800, uh, pardon me, 2,300 year time frame, well, then the sanctuary would be cleansed. But let's ask ourselves the question. In 70 AD, the Romans came 
and destroyed the temple. The sanctuary was destroyed. Has there been another temple on earth built? Was there one in 1844 somewhere on the earth? So what sanctuary could this be talking about? There was no sanctuary on the earth that could possibly be cleansed. What is this talking about? How do we figure it out? We go to the book of Revelation. So let's go over there. Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, and we're going to begin seeing that there is more than one sanctuary talked of in the Bible. So Revelation chapter 11, we're reading here in verse 19. Revelation 11 verse 19, and the temple of God was opened, and where was it? In heaven. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings, and a great earthquake. Uh, pardon me, in an earthquake and great hail. So here, Revelation tells us that there is a temple of God and it's in heaven. Now we're going to look at uh, chapter 15 and verse 5. And there it says, after that I looked and behold the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. Where is it? In heaven. In heaven was opened. So as, as John in the book of Revelation is receiving these uh, visions and things from, from uh, God here in the New Testament, he's seeing that there's a temple, there's a sanctuary, there's a tabernacle, not here upon the earth, but a sanctuary in heaven. You know, when Jesus went back to, when Jesus went back to heaven after his ascension, he died 31 AD, and then of course the next, that Sunday morning, he rose from the dead again, and 40 days later, he was, uh, uh, he rose from the, with the disciples, not with the disciples, but he, he went back to heaven and left his disciples here. When he went back to heaven, he became a priest. He became our great high priest, and he began to minister in a tabernacle, in a sanctuary in heaven. And we can actually learn about what Jesus has been doing through these centuries and what he's actually doing right now by understanding the sanctuary service and the temple service that took place here on the earth. So we're going to take a look at that for a minute. Hebrews, just back up from the book of Revelation there. You'll come to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8. And we'll see here that that's exactly what happened. Hebrews chapter 8, that Jesus was going to go to a sanctuary, a temple in heaven. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Now, the things, of, the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty, where? In the heavens. He's a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. So here the Bible tells us that Jesus is in the heavens and he's a minister of the sanctuary. He's our great high priest and it says that there he's a minister there in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched. Who pitched the one that was here upon the earth? Moses did. Moses built that one. The people of Israel built that one. But this is the one that God built. This is the true tabernacle, the real tabernacle, and the Lord pitched it and not man. So there is a sanctuary in heaven, but it's, a, it's uh, the one, the great original, the true tabernacle of which the one on earth was a copy. So here we see a, uh, a, a temple here on the on the earth, there's uh, sacrifices taking place. All the nation of Israel was uh, surrounding this temple, and there was a pillar of cloud there. And inside the temple, there were two rooms, two apartments, and they were called the holy place and the most holy place. So this was the holy place here, and then this was the most holy place, two separate rooms. And it pointed to what Jesus was going to do in heaven, in a sanctuary there, not a sanctuary upon the earth. So now we're going to re continue reading here in verse 5, because the sanctuary on earth was a uh, um, kind of a, a sandbox example of what was going on in heaven. So the priests on earth would serve unto the example and shadow of what kind of things? 
heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he is about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. When they got to Mount Sinai, the nation of Israel, God called Moses up into the mountain. He was going to give him his law, but he was also going to give him instruction about the sanctuary. And he showed him the sanctuary in heaven, the great original. And then he says, I want you to make a sanctuary on the earth. I want a place where I can dwell with you. But I want you to make sure that you make it just like I showed you. I want you to make sure that you make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. And the reason I want you to make sure that you show uh, that you make it exactly as I'm telling you, exactly like the pattern, because it's going to demonstrate what Jesus is doing in heaven. And I want you to be fully aware of what your Savior is doing. It's going to be used as an example and shadow of what's going on in heaven. So make sure if you if you make something that's not quite right in the tabernacle down here, you're going to get a wrong conception of what Jesus is doing up there. So make sure, Moses, that you make all things according to the pattern so that when you look at the sanctuary on earth and see what the priests are doing, see what all the things that go on there, you'll have the correct idea of what Jesus is doing in heaven because we can't see him there. We can't understand what is actually taking place. Now, there were two, um, two main services that took place in this sanctuary on earth that demonstrate what Jesus was doing in heaven. We flip over to the next chapter here in chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, and we look at verse 6. Now, when all these things were thus ordained, in other words, when the sanctuary is all made, everything is finished, the priests went always into the first tabernacle or the first room, accomplishing the service of God. So on a regular daily basis, the priest would go into this first apartment and they would accomplish the service of God. Now, if you were uh, living back in this time, living in the time of... Um, of the nation of Israel and you happened to be someone who had committed some error, committed some sin, and you wanted to have your sins forgiven, then you would bring a lamb to the temple. You would bring a lamb to this sanctuary. The priest would be there. And as you brought your little lamb, he would take a look at it, make sure there was nothing wrong with it, no blemishes on it, no bad marks, no, no disease or anything, because it had to represent who? had to represent Jesus. When John the Baptist was here upon the earth and he saw Jesus coming to warn him in John chapter 1 and verse 29, he pointed and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. So this little lamb would represent Jesus Christ. And then as you brought your little lamb, you would place your hands upon the head of this lamb and you would begin to confess your sins. And as you confessed your sins over the head of that lamb, where were the sins being symbolically transferred to? They were going from you to this lamb. And then the priest would give you a knife because the wages of sin is death. And so you would, you would slit the throat of that little lamb. You would kill the lamb. Was, it, was the lamb responsible for doing anything wrong? No, but because the sin was on the lamb, because you'd placed your hands upon its head, because you'd transferred your sin to that little lamb, now that lamb had to die. But the service wasn't over yet. What would happen next is the priest would be standing there and he would have a little bowl to catch some of the blood coming from that neck of that little lamb. He would catch some of the blood and he would go inside the sanctuary. He'd go inside the temple and he would sprinkle the blood before this curtain that separated the holy from the most holy place. In the most holy place, there was an ark that contained the law of God. And the law of God, of course, had been broken. We had sinned. And so what does the law demand from a sinner? The wages of sin is death. And so because the law had been broken, it demanded the life of the sinner. So when the priest walked in and started sprinkling blood, it was like it was telling the law, a life has been forfeited. Atonement has been made. 
a sacrifice has, been uh, uh, has happened. And then he would put some blood on the four corners of this uh, altar here, sprinkle some blood, put the, the uh, uh, blood on the four corners of this altar. And so the sin was forgiven. However, there still remained inside the sanctuary a record of that sin because the blood was sprinkled there. And so over the course of a year, as more and more people brought their, their uh, sacrifices, more and more sins were getting transferred to the sanctuary. The sort of the blood is building up. There's a, there's a record of everybody's sins inside the sanctuary. And that made necessary a final work at the end of the year on one day of a year. And that we see in the next verse, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 7. It says, but into the second, that's the second room now, but into the second went the, who went in? The high priest, not just any ordinary priest, but the high priest went in. He went in by himself alone. And how often did he do this? Once a year. He went in alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. So now on this final, uh, uh, this final day of the year, the high priest would go in here. There's still a work to do. And now what he's doing is going to clean up the record of this sin. The high priest was now going to go into the most holy place where this uh, Ark of the Covenant was, where this piece of furniture was, the law was inside here, and he would begin sprinkling blood on this, not now for a record of sin, but to cleanse the record of sin. You remember what Gabriel told Daniel? That it, in the, uh, uh, at the end of the 2,300 days, the sanctuary would be what? cleansed and so this record of sin now was going to be cleaned up the record of of sin from the past year was going to be cleaned up all the folks from uh, the Israelites they would be outside this tabernacle they would be confessing their sins they were making sure searching their hearts making sure that there wasn't any sin that they hadn't confessed and the reason for that was if there was some sin that they hadn't confessed, where was the sin? Still on them. Rather than getting it into the sanctuary where it could be cleansed. And so they were searching their hearts, making sure there was no sin still on them that hadn't been confessed, that hadn't been gotten into the sanctuary so that it could be cleansed and removed. And this special service at the end, once a year, at the end of the year, was known today, it's known as Yom Kippur. Anybody heard of Yom Kippur? You know what Yom Kippur is? Yeah? Some people do. Some people shaking their heads. No, don't know what it is. Okay, Yom Kippur is a Hebrew name for a day of atonement. Yom Kippur is just uh, translated the Day of Atonement. It was a special time when the sanctuary would be cleansed. It was one, uh, one day out of the year where the sanctuary would be cleansed. And so it was, uh, uh, in the Hebrew word Yom Kippur, it was a Day of Atonement. It was for the cleansing of the sanctuary. It was really a day of judgment for the nation of Israel. And so we're told that at the end of these uh, 2,300 years, at the end, the sanctuary would be cleansed. Well, what's really going on there? It's a time of judgment, a day of judgment when the record books in heaven would be cleansed. And people say, well, really? You know, is there something is there something in heaven? Are there record books in heaven that actually need cleansing? I mean, heaven is such a pure and holy place. Is there something up there that needs cleansing? Well, let's take a look. Chapter 9. We're here in chapter 9, verse 22. Chapter 9 and verse 22. And we find out, yes, there is something that needs to be cleansed in heaven. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, And almost all things are by the law 
purged or cleansed with blood. Blood is needing, needed for cleansing. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. So blood is necessary to cleanse, to purge, to get rid of. And almost everything by the law is purged with blood. Verse 23 says, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens, in other words, the earthly sanctuary, should be purified with these, and these representing the animal sacrifices, the blood sacrifices that took place on the earth. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So not only did the earthly sanctuary need to be cleansed, but the heavenly sanctuary needed to be cleansed too. The earthly sanctuary was cleansed with the blood of what? Animals, lambs. But the heavenly things themselves, yes, still needed to be cleansed, but not with the blood of animals, with the blood of who? The blood of Jesus Christ. So cleansing needed to take place there as well. Blood was necessary to cleanse. It was necessary that the patterns be cleansed with the blood of animals, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, the one that Moses made. They're just the figures or the patterns of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so Jesus, when he went to heaven, he became our priest to, uh, to uh, intercede in our behalf there in heaven. Moses was the one who made the copy here upon the earth, but now Jesus, our great high priest, is the one who uh, began presenting his blood, presenting his own sacrifice there in the first apartment, and then at some point he would go into the second apartment and begin the day of atonement, the cleansing of the sanctuary. And we were told there in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14 that it would be at the end of the 2,300 days in the year 1844 where Jesus would move from the first department into the second department and the day of atonement would begin. And this is what Daniel saw in vision. Not only did Daniel see that in vision, but John saw it in vision as well. So we're going to go over to the book of Revelation now. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, notice what the scriptures say here. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Is this a message that needs to go to everybody? Yes, everybody needs to hear about it. Everybody needs to understand what's coming at the end of time. Verse 7 says, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. The time of judgment is here. The hour of his judgment is come. Worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. The message of the gospel, this gospel of the kingdom, needs to be preached in all the world. Here we see the gospel and the message uh, uh, focuses, or part of the focus of the gospel message at the end of time is the hour of his judgment is already here. And it, this message announcing the judgment has already come happens just before Jesus comes back again. If you'll notice in verse 14, Verse 14, here we see Jesus coming. So in verse uh, 7, it, the judgment is announced. And then now here down in verse 14, it says, I looked and behold a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel comes out of, where's the angel coming from? He's coming out of the temple. He's coming out of the temple in heaven, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. So the time of the judgment, the cleansing of the sanctuary, takes place just before Jesus comes back to harvest the uh, the people, his, harvest his people as he comes as king of kings and lord of lords. So the judgment process 
is making up and deciding who are the citizens of the kingdom. Who are the ones that are going to be part of Christ's kingdom when he comes back again? The, the uh, folks that he's going to give the kingdom to. Daniel sees the judgment taking place in heaven. Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. I beheld till the thrones were cast down. The ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And what was set? The judgment was set and the books were opened. So here we see the judgment being set and we see the books being opened. Records there in heaven. The judgment was set and the books were opened. So here we have a vision of this uh, great throne room in heaven. Notice how many angels there are. Thousand thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand. This is a big place. Lots of angels there. So we've got all these witnesses, if you will, of what has gone on upon this earth. All these angels. And then we've got... The judgment was set. We've got the Ancient of Days, who's the great judge. And then we've got evidence, Exhibit A. The books are opened. And so here Daniel sees this taking place. So we've got, uh, we've got the judge. We've got the evidence. We've got the witnesses. We need someone to be on our side. And so John, or Daniel then sees Jesus coming. Not to this earth, but to the ancient of days. I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and he came to the ancient of days. He came to the father and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed so Jesus comes he receives the kingdom and then he's going to come back to this earth again that the king give the kingdom to the saints and John back in the book of Revelation we go back to the book of Revelation sees this judgment just like uh, just like Daniel sees the judgment set the books are being opened God is going to show this to John in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And what was opened? The books. The books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. That's the book we want to have our name in. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to what? according to their works. So here again, we see this great judgment taking place. We see that the books are there, the record books, and people are judged out of those things that are written in the books, and they're judged according to their works. And once that judgment is finished, Jesus comes back again to bring his people to uh, that kingdom that he's prepared for them. Over in chapter 22 and verse 11, here's the pronouncement once the judgment is all finished. He that is unjust still, let him be unjust. He that is unjust, pardon me, let him be unjust still or let him remain that way. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And so once this pronouncement is made, all the wicked are going to remain that way, and then all the righteous are going to remain that way. Once the judgment has made those determinations, notice the next verse. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as what? According as his works shall be. So at the end, once the judgment concludes, then Jesus comes back to get his people, to give them the kingdom that he has gone to prepare for them. 
So when Jesus comes, every case has been decided. People are judged by their works, as we read there in chapter 20, and then they're rewarded according to their works, as we read here in uh, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12. But are we... We're judged according to our works. We're rewarded according to our works. You know, some people think that our good is going to outweigh our bad, and that's kind of really what's being balanced there in heaven. Have I got more good things than I've done than bad things that I've done? And if I do, well, then, you know, things will come down well on that side. What's really t being talked about here? That we're judged according to our works and rewarded according to our works but yet the Bible says we're not saved by our works. How do you figure that out? If you're not saved by your works and yet you're judged by them, what's this talking about? How do we reconcile this? How do we put it together? Well, it's in the book of James, James chapter 2. James chapter 2, and here's where God explains this to us why we're judged according to our works rewarded according to our works and yet we're not saved by our works so James chapter 2 and look at verse 19 there it says thou believest that there is one God thou doest well the devils also believe but what do they do they tremble so is the devil's belief in Jesus something that saves him no, not at all. He's, he's trembling. And so the devil believes that Jesus is the Messiah. The devil believes that the uh, Bible is the word of God. The devil believes that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all unrighteousness. The devil believes all those things, but it doesn't save him. How come? You know, there's two kinds of faith. There's a living faith and there's a dead faith. What kind of faith do you think the devil has? He has a dead faith because his belief doesn't cause any change to take place in his life. And so this is what James tells us in the very next verse, verse 20. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is what? It's dead. So there's a living faith, a living faith where we surrender ourselves to Jesus Christ. We confess our sins. We invite him into our life. He fills us with his spirit and he enables us to follow him. That's a living faith. The dead faith is, yeah, I just, I believe this, but I believe that, but I'm not going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what's going on in the judgment as God looks over the record books is, who really has a living faith? Who really has accepted Jesus and allowed Jesus to transform and change their life? Who has a living faith and not just a dead faith? And so that's why the record books are being looked at. It's not that we're saved by our works, but our works demonstrate whether our faith is really genuine. We're saved by faith, but we're judged by works. The reason we're being judged by our works is to determine, is our faith really a real faith? Is our faith really something where we embrace Jesus, or is it just like the devil? Yeah, I believe these things, but it hasn't made any difference in my heart and in my life. So we're judged by faith, or pardon me, we're uh, saved by faith, but we're judged according to our works. Now, what happens if while we're seeking to follow Jesus, we fail, we fall? What takes place then? Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Who is it? Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace 
to help in time of need. We can go to Jesus Christ. If we fail, if we fall, we can go right to the throne of grace. We can obtain mercy and we can find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, Wherefore he's able also to save to the uttermost that, the, uh, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for us. I'm grateful for those scriptures that tell us that Jesus is my priest in heaven. He's willing to listen. I can find grace to help in me. He's always living to intercede in my behalf. Now, the Bible tells us, as we've learned this, e or this morning, that by 1844, at the end of those 2300 days, the record books in heaven began to, be, uh, to take place, where God is examining those books to see if people's faith is really genuine. What would it be like when your name comes up? Because your name will come up. Your individual Kim Care. The page is going to turn and it's going to be my name. My life is going to be looked in. What happened when your name is called? Think about what it would be like if you hear your name called and you're having to go up to the throne of God. You're walking down this long corridor and you see these massive doors in front of you. And just as you get to them, they open effortlessly on their hinges. And as they open, this light kind of just envelops you. And you stand on the threshold of this sanctuary where there's 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of angels, all the witnesses, the judgment is set. And your name is called, and you have to go down to the bar of God. And as you walk along towards the throne, high and lifted up in front of you, your whole life begins to flash before you. Everything you've said, everything you've done, every place you've gone, everything that nobody knows about but you only in your heart of hearts is now all flashing before you as you have to get closer and closer to answer. And as you get closer and closer and all of these comes, you know that you don't have the ability to pass the exam. And just as you get to the bar of God, you feel this hand on your shoulder and you turn to see who it is and there you look into the face of who? Jesus. And as he, his eyes can pierce through everything about your life, he knows you intimately, everything about you. And he just asks you one question. Can I go with you? What would your answer be? Absolutely. And so now you walk up together to the bar of God. And then he tells you, you wait right here and let me go and speak for you. And as the record books are looked over, Jesus begins to, to speak. You can't really hear what he's saying, but every once in a while you can see your name being formed on his lips. And when he's finished speaking, he raises his hands and he points to the nail prints in his hands. He pulls back his hair to reveal those marks in his brow made by those thorns. He pulls aside his garment to show the wound that that Roman spear went into his heart. And then he bows his head and he rests his case. And you can hear a pin drop in this vast cavernous room as you await the verdict to come back. And finally you see the judge of all the earth pick up the gavel and it comes down with a thunder crash. Not guilty. Not guilty. 
and the angels take the crowns off their heads and they throw them into the air. They're excited and Jesus comes over to you and he puts his arm around you. He presents you to the rest of those angels and he addresses them and he says, this is why. This is why I left heaven. This is why I took off my crown, my throne, uh, my crown and went down, down, down to that dark little speck of a world. This is why. And now he turns to you and he says, come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. How's it going to be when you stand before the bar of God? As we close this morning, I'd like us to sing together, to sing this wonderful song about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so would we, uh, could we just stand together? The words are going to be on the screen and And as we sing together, if God has spoken to your heart this morning and you want to be prepared and ready when Jesus calls your name and your name comes up in the judgment, you want to be ready for that. You want to be for sure right with Jesus Christ, that he confess your name before the Father. I just invite you to come forward and say, Lord, I want to be prepared when my name comes up in the judgment. So as we sing the words of this song, just, just start to come forward and let Jesus know that you want to be with him. So this is the, the song, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, and you can, uh, we'll go ahead and begin. And just come ahead, let Jesus know you want to be ready when your name comes up in the judgment. is coming and your name is going to come up every time that we have opportunity to confess Christ he says if you'll confess me here before men I will confess your name in heaven before my father and his angels will you confess Jesus this morning you come forward this morning and tell Jesus, I want to be your follower. I want to be prepared for the judgment. And so as we continue to sing here, let's sing together as we uh, sing this second verse.
song. Tis I that deserve thy place. I deserve your place. Look on me with your favor. Vouchsafe to me your grace. It really should have been me hanging on that cross, not Jesus Christ. And yet he offers me the gift of eternal life. He wants me to be in heaven with him. And so as we sing this last verse again, Jesus is watching. He's hoping. Come forward. Be the first one. And come ahead as we sing our last verse here. Make Jesus smile. for his goodness for those that have come forward this morning it's a special time when we have the opportunity to confess Christ and give ourselves to him and so let's bow our heads and thank him this morning for his great mercies to each and every one of us dear father in heaven we just praise you and thank you for the great plan of salvation how you've offered to us the gift of eternal life, not for anything we've done or deserve, but simply because of your grace and mercy shown to us through Jesus Christ, who suffered and died in our place. And as he suffered and took our place on Calvary's cross, he's promised also to stand for us in the judgment. Lord, I pray for those that have come forward this morning, Wash them from your sin, from their sins. And Lord, when their name comes up in the judgment in heaven, that their sins might be removed from those record books and that they might hear the words, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Lord, be with each and every one of us. We need you. Thank you for being with us this morning. And again, there may be one individual, another one that might say, you know, I, I should have made this public declaration, but even now, would you just raise your hand where you are? Raise your hand high and say, Jesus, I want to be ready when my name comes up. Will you just let Jesus know would you kind of hold your hand up and, and sort of symbolically grasp his hand as he reaches down to you? Just raise your hand to heaven. Father in heaven, be with these dear people. Bless them abundantly. And we so look forward to your second coming. And we thank you for being with us today. In Jesus' name.